Welcome to The Growing Band Director, the podcast that dives into topics applying to all of us band directors. My name is Kyle Smith, and joining me is my friend and colleague, Jeff Smith. Together, we discuss many aspects of the school band program, including how to build your concert, jazz, and marching programs, as well as everything else we do as band directors. More importantly, we'll discuss concepts that help us all improve our own programs every day. Always remember the famous quote by Ray Kroc, when you're green, you're growing, and when you're ripe, you rot. Let's get started. All right, welcome everybody again to The Growing Band Director. This is episode nine, and this is going to be all about marching band show design. Jeff, how are we today? Great, how are you? Oh, just peachy. Just uh, <laughs> living the life. Um, before we get started, thanks everybody for subscribing and, and uh, checking out this podcast week after week. Um, looking for some new content and I'm excited about some other guests that are coming up later this month that I think you are going to recognize and uh, hopefully enjoy the conversations that we have. Um, so, you know, continue to tell your friends about the podcast and uh, keep spreading the word if you would. Uh, before we start, I wanted to tell you about Main Saxes which is a one-on-one sax- uh, saxophone specialty shop providing expert repairs, sales, and private saxophone lessons in New Gloucester, Maine. At Maine Saxes, they work with you individually by appointment only, so you get personalized attention whether you need a saxophone repair or you're shopping for a horn, mouthpiece, reeds, or accessories. Um, they offer a carefully curated selection of overhauled vintage and modern horns. You can test them in person, knowing they're playing their full potential, as well as some of the new finest handmade mouthpieces from artisans like Aaron Drake and Morgan Mouthpieces. You can visit them at Maine Saxes, that's M-A-I-N-E, saxes.com for more information or to to browse their inventory. And also in the the New England area up in Portland, we have Banjo Music, written by, um, sorry, excuse me, um, run by Joe Betancourt and Sean Potter, and they take all these great used instruments and they do their magic on making them play like new horns, and you get great horns at very cheap prices. So that's banjomusic.com. Wonderful people, wonderful business, and uh, let's keep pushing some business their way. All right, Jeff, so we're talking about marching band, and those two words are um, two words that a lot of band directors don't like to hear, right? Because they don't have marching band programs, and starting a marching band program is almost impossible because of the amount of money that it takes and and all that but you know we work together on our marching band program and you know i think anybody who does it like we do it we do it so the students can have another performing opportunity they can connect in a more physical way to a show and as a teamwork it's just different from all the other ensembles that we teach and first and foremost as we're putting together a show you have to think about what your audience is and and all the things we're going to get into but we can't lose sight of the fact that we're teaching young human beings um, to be respectful people and members of their community and we're teaching them to be good musicians so when when i teach marching band i try to choose great music that i enjoy and i know you do the same music that kids can learn from you know music that has has stuff in it that we all need to be learning from and performing whether it be the history of the tune um, message behind the tune, what they learn from the tune, uh, and all that, and audi- obviously audience friendly as well. So I want people to, you know, know we're going to talk about some different types of marching band. Here in Westbrook, we do the, I guess what you'd call the competitive circuit, even though it's really less about the competition for me. Um, but we try to put together an entertaining, almost DCI um, type of show, even though it's obviously much easier. Um, we don't really do the 
football game entertainment halftime show, even though we do play for our halftime. Um, so, Jeff, where do we want to start? You are, if people don't know, um, quite experienced. I think you've ex you've you've planned more shows than I've been alive, and um, you know you have a lot of wisdom to share with us. So, where where should we start? Well, I, I think we should. I, I want to add two things to what you previously said. You know, a banjo, one of my friend's clarinet fell on the ground and the main rod on the lower stem broke, uh, bent. And they brought it up to Joe and he had it fixed in 15 minutes, playing better than it ever played before. Yep. So a big thank you to for Joe for doing that for me, for my friend. And then, uh, you know, we got the competitive style marching band. We got the football style marching band. And some of you don't have... Um, football in your schools but you do some parades and uh there's that style and as we said we're going to talk about competitive i think the thing that to amplify what you said is that can we talk about the parade thing real quick just i know we're not going to sure. spend on it but while you mentioned i had a thought um what was your approach for a parade band like sort of the the big approach my big approach was that first of all i wanted it to be a good piece of music that they were playing that would allow them to perform well because if you look at it a parade probably you're going to see the largest audience you see in any community at one time and you want to project that great musical sound to the audience so that they know that their tax dollars are going well for the program so second would, part of it was would you to have a good that, team. would you agree that if like if the, the kids should almost be able to sight read the piece it should be easy enough that they can play it very well right away or pretty quickly so that they can perform it really well. So it's not one of the hardest pieces that they're playing. It would never be one of the hardest pieces. As I got older and wiser, uh, I, I did go more that way. When I started out, you know, I, my first few years in high school, we played Stars and Stripes Forever with 20 trombones in the front row, double tonguing. And that worked out pretty good because I had some great kids. But as time went on, I started realizing I that just took too much time. So, yes, I, I had four pieces that I rotated because I knew that the kids could learn them. They could memorize them well. And then I just wanted them to t learn the basics of marching, mm -hmm. going down the street, staying in a straight row and college dressing and covering and being able to do left and right turns and look yeah. appropriate. Yeah, so basically being able to stay in step with the left foot starting okay. off on count one, um, dressing either to center or to right or to left or however you want that. So they cover down, which is front to back, and dress, which is left to right, so that they look good with good posture. And have good instrument carriage so the horns are up and they don't look like they're slumped. slumped. And there's even a place for those kids who can't play the music while they're marching. Sure. You know, like as you're in a parade, at least I've always taught this, I would rather a kid, if they can't march it and play it for a, cup, for a part of it, I'd rather them march it and look really good and because everybody will see that. And then when they're ready to jump in and play, they will. Rather yes. than kind of fumble down the street and try to play some notes. And if I had kids like that, I would rewrite the music so that maybe they're just playing sustained chords so they could focus on something but still feel like their level of accomplishment was high because they did play while doing that. Uh, mine started, We in our district, we had middle school bands marching in at least two parades a year. Yeah. And one of the parades, my second year of teaching was seven miles long. And uh, one of those parades where you thought it would never end. Yeah. And uh, we worked hard to get them ready and they did a nice job. The other thing is picking a good cadence. Yes. I think sometimes we get carried away with so many notes in our cadences that kids can't find where the left and the right foot go. And I think we need to pick one that is accessible 
musical and let allows a child to find left and right and and the, and the, and the parade route people can clap along to it they can correct keep- so they so they have a good time with it and um and that draws your taxpayers into seeing what you've accomplished and saying yes we want to keep pushing that music program so so to me i mean especially if we're doing memorial day parade and veterans day parades and things like that if you have something that's patriotic in nature and to i mean my view patriotic in nature and easy and they can look good then they they tend to like it more and the and the crowd likes it more i've i found that you know there's a plug um, there's a piece that I found in our library when I got here a long time ago called Salute to Freedom by mm. Andy Clark. And it has three movements, but what I decided to do was to do the first movement and the third the third movement, and each one is 16 measures long. And it goes from the key of B-flat to the key of F. So we just added a two-measure a two drum break in the middle, and, and it worked fine. It features the trombones near the end and the highs in the beginning and, and near the end, and, um, and it works really, really well. I guess I would just say my biggest bit of advice for people who have to march is they just they choose a march. You know, they choose like a standard march, which has a lot of stuff in it. And then they're not super successful. You know, I would just love to see every high school and middle school band looking as good as they can look. Because steady beat is not something that's just ingrained. I know a lot of people say, well, everybody has steady beat. Well, yeah, when they're walking, maybe. But, you know, the kids who can just play with steady beat, you know, I firmly believe that's a developed skill. Some have it in middle school and some don't. But if we just don't over-program that parade tune, if we just find something that really works well, and if you can't find something, look harder. Find somebody to arrange it. You arrange it yourself. You know, even we got to a point where our beginners in Westbrook, all the kids play the melody. You know, there's Mm -hmm. none of this harmony stuff. Like, literally, they all get the main melody, and we write it out in the best key possible for them. I think we use E-flat major, so they don't have to go above the break for clarinet and uh strengthen numbers and make it easy enough um and that's worked really well for us everybody thinks the band sounds amazing nobody on the parade route is going to say wow you know you're not doing that in the proper key or you're not doing that that's not complicated enough you know that's just not an issue i think the one of the other things that band directors have to think about is the placement of the percussion section and the placement of the low brass particularly the trombones they need to make certain that the percussion section is in the middle of the band and in the forward section of the band, I recommend they put the trombones first. So they have slide room and then saxophone section, though they're woodwinds and other low brass ending with tubas, then percussion. Then in the second half of the band, have it lead with the trumpet players, the clarinets, the flutes and the piccolos. And that way there's an easier hearing of what's going on. And since many times in the arrangements we have the flutes, clarinets, and the trumpets have the melody, that means the melody is coming up through the percussion, going into the low brass to the forward, and it keeps the music together so you don't get phasing if you have a larger band. You know what? I've I've never I've never thought of it that way. You know, I've I've never marched more than eighty kids, so I, I can't say that I we've ever had a really large band when we march. Um, if we haven't had issues with phasing, um, but that's interesting. I might I might consider that. Because we've always put the percussion section in the back, and then we've basically—I mean, sometimes we put the brass in the front and the woodwinds in the back, and then the percussion behind them. But we've always had the percussion in the back, um, so I'm going to consider that. You know, Jeff, you always come up with things that I haven't thought about, and that's—that's that's the whole purpose, right? Yeah, everybody has different ways of doing things. My thing was based on a 200-plus size band, and it worked out better. And especially when you're going around corners yeah. and you're making a turn and. 
uh, you're halfway through the turn and everybody's saying, oh, where's the melody? But if you have the melody on the back filtering through to the front, it helps out a lot. I've also I've also found that if you have years where you want to look bigger and be more impressive, you know, we'll go four to a four to a line or four to a row. Right. And rather than six or eight or or whatever. Sorry. There's your phone. Um, two two on either side. And we sort of spread out a little bit and four step spacing. And, you know, especially in a year, maybe if you're a smaller band or whatever, people just see a bigger, a bigger thing. And, you know, I, I know we, I don't know if we plan to talk about uniforms or not, but the uniform part of the parade band to me is a big deal. There's a lot of days when we're doing Memorial day and it's, Oh, it's going to be 88 degrees. And people think about like, we should use jeans and a t-shirt and whatever. And to me, that's like the biggest mistake you can make, you know, correct. Like, they say these uniforms are wool. Well, they don't know what wool uniforms really were. These uniforms might be a little bit hot, but there's, you know, as long as it's not dangerous, right? Um, there's just, you know, just seeing the band coming down the parade route in the band uniform is such a big deal. So in the 1960s, I wore a wool uniform that had a wool overlay that went on top of it. And that was hot. The uniforms of today, I have nothing in comparison to those back then um on the subject of lines in the band i always did an odd number so that the center person was going down the center of the street and as we were moving forward we didn't dress right or left we dressed to the center and kept spacing that way and when you got on longer parade routes and you made turns that actually helped to make the turn stay in in line a little bit better even though you're guiding right or left depending on which way you were um going down the parade route uh but yeah uniforms you need to wear your uniform no matter how warm it is because remember taxpayers paid for those uniforms they want to see what they paid for out there being used and representing your school and the last thing i'll say real fast is that with high school i always did a easier song like you said and i always played the school fight song because there's tons of alums on that side of the road that want to hear the school fight song so we did we did a cycle cadence the song we picked for that for that parade cadence into the school fight song and then we do two or three reps of the cadence and we start the cycle over again yep. so, so yeah. that alums got a little feel of pride that they're seeing their their high school go by and in my town there were two high schools so there's always a little fun there trying to grit against both the high schools and and you have these slow parades or fast parades you know we have a town parade that's always wicked slow you're just standing there in front of the post office for 40 minutes until while you're playing and you know, you just get one of these where you get stuck. And to me, the slower the parade, we do the cadence four times, five times, maybe, you know, the faster the parade, if we're not stopping and we're cruising, maybe twice, you know, especially as your brass players are getting tired, um, you know, the more cadence time, the more time they, they gain last. So what, what we did is if we knew we were getting to a spot where we were going to be there for like five or 10 minutes, we did a flash mob. Everybody would go out in the audience, leave the drums in the center, and we'd play in amongst the audience while the drums played so that the audience was part of us playing just to bring the audience in the whole thing. And we'd run back in and make the formation again and go down the street. Well, that's a great idea. It's so just for fun. I, I wanted to touch briefly too, because we all, if we have to do this parade thing, especially in the middle school and high schools where kids don't march, you know, if you have kids who are in your band who are successful marchers, you can go out there a couple times. Yeah, they remember how to march and you're good to go. But a lot of us, we get, have kids who like have never marched, don't know how to march, 
how do you actually teach them to march and you're not a marching band director so i want to give you just my very basic sort of thing that i approach it with just think of it from the feet up and think of it as like you teach any other skill in band right so for me if we get out there and you don't even have a drum line with you say it's just a wind line and you have to bring a gawk or or a cowbell or something where you can show them where the beat is or a metronome on a speaker or something you know i i have them we have them just stand with their feet together you know looking looking forward to teach them about good posture from the top of their head down to the bottom of their feet um we do deal with marking time for sure um i try not to get into that too much the biggest thing to me is about being able to step off on the correct foot and march with a steady beat so we'll go the first couple classes with our hands down by the side we're not really worrying about upper body posture we're just trying to stay left and right at the same time um, occasionally we'll start even singing the music or whatever um, and then maybe once they're doing that okay we teach the horns having the horns up and and we teach okay now can we do that and hold a long tone can we do it and play quarter notes right so you're kind of kind of, kind of taking like warm-up exercises and marching with them so you're getting used to what that's like to be on the correct foot um, and then you know if you have a couple classes where you go through that and they've started to learn the music simultaneously if we're sitting inside and practicing, I'll actually have them, you know, tap their foot, but they'll tap their foot left, right, left, right to kind of practice the playing while they're sitting down and then maybe do that in marking time or just marching in place, whatever. You know, to me, it's more about can you put the left foot on count one every measure? And no matter how you screw up, if you can get the count one to be a left foot, then you know how to get back on track. And there's tricks about if you get on the right foot, how to do a skip and get it back onto the right foot and, and all those things. I don't know necessarily know if we need to get into that, but just people just go out there and they just assume, okay, let's just go. And if we're going around the track, we're being successful. Like think of it as, are they actually starting with the correct foot altogether? And, and when you stop, like, can you actually help the kids who are suffering? Cause we all know those kids who can't do it right now, like actually spend time with them and try to get them to feel successful from the feet up. And even if they have an ad, you know, even if they don't march, or even if they don't play and they just march, that's like a huge, a huge step for those kids. So I, I advocate for some sort of plan before you start your marching practices so that you actually do something. The amount of band directors I talk to who just say, yeah, we'll get out there once before the parade and, you know, we'll get down the parking lot and leave. And it's like, you know, like we put all the effort into everything that we do as band directors. And now we're going out into the public to do this big performance, you know, at least like look good. Because most of them don't know what they're hearing, but they know what they're seeing. Well, I agree with you 100%. And one thing that I'll say is a, a mantra of mine is that people will judge you on how you look first and then listen to you. They don't listen to you first and look at you second. So the visual has to be clean. And then to help out the younger band director who's trying to get them to get their feet together, everything you said is excellent. The other thing I used to do is I used to take a pair of old go-go bells in a big drumstick and I'd put the lower bell on the left foot and the right foot, uh, right foot on the higher bell and the boom, bing, boom, bing, boom, bing to help them in the beginning. So they could hear, have a visual aid to help them go by that. And then many of my cadences were very left foot oriented because of the way the bass drum part was written so that the kids could clearly hear where their left foot was. I think the biggest problem in parade is knowing when to step off and how to step off putting your weight on your right foot and pushing into your left foot to step off. And that's where kids have the, the younger kids in particular, or novices have the biggest problem. Yep. And YouTube is always a big help. If you're somewhere where there's nobody around to help you, 
look up marching basics on YouTube. You go in your backyard and figure it out. And if you as a teacher can figure it out, then you figure out how you're going to teach it to your kids. I mean, there's no excuse not to be able to teach them to be able to march if you put in the effort. And I think our viewers can text us if they have a question or yeah, uh, email us if yeah. they have a question. We'll give some advice. Yeah. Anything else on parade band? Just do it well. Yeah. Just do it well. No matter what you do, do it well. And try not to fight it. Like a lot of people say they want to try to get out of it. I mean, I understand, you know, in our town, we don't do a Veterans Day parade, you know, and like, I'm not going to be the first one to say, hey, we need to be at the Veterans Day parade. You know, it's just, that's the tradition of the town, but it's just, it, it's tough because in also, you know, that's how you're out in the community. As we've said, that's for many people, that's the only time they're going to see you. And if you're not there, they're going to say, oh, we don't have a band. doesn't matter if you won the national championship, you know, we don't have a band if you're not at the parade. And so many times it comes on Memorial Day where there's every soccer tournament known to man and a baseball tournament and all these things. And you have these kids who are pulled in all these different directions. And like, yes, this is for a class and it's community support, um, but you know, you're gonna have some kids that are missing because of that. And at the same time you have some kids, you know, tend to be girls who sometimes have some fashion sense issues where they're like, I'm very fashionable and you're gonna put me in this marching band uniform? I don't think so. And so the approach I've always made to them is, is this. It's that, okay, if you understand what Memorial Day is, first of all, we're here to serve the community. Memorial Day is for people who've lost their life in service to our country. And I would say in 100% of the time when they've lost their life in service to our country, they were wearing a U.S. uniform while that happened. So if we think of the bigger picture and not ourself, that A, realizing what this is about and understanding that, okay, this is maybe not the fashion that you want to wear. But the second part of it is that if we do this correctly, your parents won't even know where you are as the parade goes by, unless you have a very distinguishing characteristic, you're really tall or really short or, or whatever. But the goal is to actually make you blend in with everybody else. And that, um, and that will, that will help. So that's, that was a struggle of mine when I was younger, you know, having kids who said, oh, I don't want to wear the uniform. And that was really an issue. And just trying to teach that pride and, and the character thing is a really, a really big deal. At my schools, it was every kid had to do so much community service and this counted as their community service as well as a grade from the minute they got out of their car to the school all the way to preparing and getting on the bus and then coming back and leaving like it's for me it's not the community service of just being on the street it's all the prep work that it takes okay. in order to do it yeah it, it, I, I i rarely had a problem with the whole thing um and in our, in our community, just as to band directors, to band directors, my colleague and I would be one year, we'd be at the front and the next year we'd be at the, the end. So whoever got to the front and got to the end of the parade first would text the other person, beat you. And uh, yeah. to this day, my friends who are back in that same school district, okay, who's going to come in first today? Uh, just because, you know, you had to make it fun. And what we did is we had our, our kids go to the middle schools and teach the drum lines and teach the guards. And then while we were waiting in the setup area for the parade, as band directors, my colleague and I would go around to the different middle school bands and we'd see the drum line and the guards and we'd rate them and give them a gold medal or a silver medal for preparation. And then that would go back to our group, to the kids who prepared and say, hey, so-and-so and so-and-so taught this guard gold medal. You did a great job. And, uh, and it just brought camaraderie ship and it also helped back to that 
recruiting thing where the kids <laughs> got to see other kids coming into the middle schools, giving them a hand. You know, you mentioned gold medal, silver medal. You know, I'll put a plug in for the way that Maine Band Directors Association does the, the competition portion is that we award gold, silver, and bronze medal, but not as a first, second, third, but as achieving a standard, right? So mm-hmm. multiple bands can get a gold or no bands can get a gold. And, and I, I have loved that because it's not about what the town next to you is doing. It's about what you're doing and how you can achieve that. And if, if judged correctly and taught correctly and you work hard, you can leave with a gold medal every single year. And that that's a huge deal. So, you know, I know there's still a lot of places that go first, second, third. And I'm not saying that I'm against competition completely, but I, I do find that the competitive music thing is less and less for me all the time. And it's more about how we compete against ourselves and how the kids compete against themselves to get better, to be the best version that they can be. Um, yeah, and and I don't disagree with you. But I come from the other side, highly competitive, competed in everything we did, but it was always also to make them the best person they could be and the best musician they possibly could be. So let's talk about designing this show, right? Um, there are a, two basic approaches. One approach, which we subscribe to, is let's customize a show for our kids that we want to make happen. Let's basically plan every minute, every second to make it the show that we want. The other side is, all right, I've got 200 bucks in budget. I need to go buy a stock show that has all the percussion parts and all the music and we'll find somebody to write our drill or maybe I'll write the drill or we'll find a stock drill, right? And we'll put it together. Um, And I'm not going to say that either one is right or wrong. Um, For me, I've never done the second one. I've always done the first one. Um, But I've also been extremely blessed to be around people who are very good drill writers and be around, you know, Terry White. And there's many other great arrangers, but um, making the show something that's accessible to you. So to me, the danger in the stock show is that you get something that sounds really good and then you actually can't match it up with your kids and your kids can't, can't bring what's needed. Like maybe it's something that, that you need a lot of power in your brass section. You really need that to make it work. But with your reduced instrumentation, it doesn't work. Doesn't work as much. Um, so well, I find that all, there's a third commodity too: is the people who have a fairly large budget, but they go out and buy these pre-made shows that are quite high, quite high level by great arrangers and great designers that were written for a band that maybe did BOA or did uh, uh, a, a large competitive circuit. Yeah. And you hear this beautiful and see this beautiful show on the field. And then you're trying to put the square peg in the round hole because the the group that did it was fabulous and you're trying to make your group fit it. But when that original show was written, it was written for an instrumentation that performed it so it fit perfectly. Yeah. Like so for I think example, your way is a better way. Like, like for example, uh, just to jump to the concert band side of things, when people do Conversations with the Night by Andy Boysen Jr., they, they w- there's this huge bass clarinet solo, right? And the reason there was a huge bass clarinet solo is because it was written for this band that had six bass clarinet players. And they were, there was a bunch of good players. So he wrote it specifically for that group. Now, if you go to play that piece and you don't have a bass clarinet player, how about you don't play the piece? You know, um, unless there's some other sort of circumstance that makes it work. But people tend to forget, you know, customizing for your kids is really the best thing you can do. Um, and again, if they're going to have to chase notes all the way into November all the way through the season then we're going to have some issues we got to be able to make good music pretty quickly to put on a visual show as well as as well as a musical show so so jeff where do we start in this we're just going to pretend that 
well, so if you're buying a stock show, you can go on JW Pepper, you can go on Grand Mesa Music, and Randall Standridge has a bunch of great ones of that. And um, uh, what's his name? Keep Poolin has a, a ton of great shows as well. I mean, I think those are some of the writers that you're that you're. And Box alluding. Six, you can go to Box Six Box also six. and get shows. And yeah. Uh, yeah, you can do it that way. And like you said, the time that you're going to spend creating your own show is probably going to be equivalent to the time you're going to spend chasing notes with the other shows. Yep. So I think with us, what we've we've come up with a pretty nice formula. We get together as a staff, which will be another subject to discuss, and uh, we talk about a concept or a theme or a storyline, and then um, and, as and we, we have a document where we throw out a bunch of them. We've got right. twenty thirty, and you know, we don't know what it's going to be, and we we discuss it down. We uh, and we get it down to a, a basic concept, and then we go and we do the same thing, fitting music to this concept that we want. But the storyline so comes first. Correct. You try to get the story, like what's going to happen in this story, and then let's find music to fit that. Not, here's three pieces I want to do. It's a fast, right. a slow, and a fast. Now let's try to make something happen. No, we go the other way, and the music is like the la almost one of the last things. And as we talk about the music, it, it and we've got the storyline, we find that as we put the music into it, it expands our storyline even more as we talk about it more, where this will do this, uh, different functionalities of what the uh, the music brings about within the storyline. So once we get that, then um, in our case, we send it to Terry White and say, this is what we'd like to do. This is what we have. This is our ideas. This is the sections we'd like to do and how we'd like to do them. Kyle communicates to Terry and Terry comes back with a, with a, his rough draft. And, and before that, even you, you know, we'll slice together, you know, audio from the original recordings so right. that your arranger can even hear what you're looking at. And then we get the score for them and say, we're looking for this measure to this measure and then this measure to this measure. And so you try to do a lot of that work for your arranger. And I think that makes their job easier. Yeah, I think the pacing, piecing together of the originals, though it's rough, it is a great way because then you can tell the storyline to an arranger a million times. But that's the one that you and your staff have devised. But if you have a roughed-in musical idea, then they have something to draw from and write from. And plus, you being, uh, meaning Kyle Smith, has a direct contact with Terry, can explain, these will be my, my, the number of instruments I probably will have. These will probably be my strengths. These will probably be my weaknesses. How can we facilitate that to make it work? And that gives us the horn book. Then comes the next tricky part which is to get that great percussion writer to fit percussion to the horn book. Mm -hmm. And in your case, you have two, two really fantastic writers, a great front ensemble writer and a great battery writer. And yeah, they so, work together real well. Yeah, so let's just stop real quick. So um, Tom LaPointe um, does all of our battery writing and John O'Hara does all of our front ensemble writing. And both of them just started as students in drumline and students in front ensemble. And, you know, um, John actually started writing the end of his sophomore year here with us. I encouraged him to do a little bit of writing and um, he's just grown and grown and grown and grown. To me, the front ensemble especially is a composition as well, you know, and I think a lot of our front ensemble writers, they just double the horn line. And that's a, an issue for a couple a couple reasons in my my book. They'll just say, okay, here's the trump the soprano line. I'm going to put this in the xylophone, and here's the tenor line. I'm going to put it in the marimba and, and whatever. And you know, the, a couple issues is one, it's it's kind of predictable and 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 doesn't have as many as many layers. 
because you're just re regurgitating what's already in the horn book. And secondly, I've found that when weather gets cold or hot, our instruments go one direction in temperature and the front ensembles go another. So for example, in wind players, we tend to go flat when it's cold, but the keys in my experience have tend to go sharp. So if you have unisons, especially sustained unisons, it makes the intonation really, really, really hard. Um, rather than saying, you know, this is a G7 measure, let's add a pad or some running notes or something that gives it some extra, some um, extra design. Um, also, then, it also allows the uh, front ensemble writer to be more creative rather than, like you said, instead of doubling the horn parts, lets them say, well, I can add this to it and we can en enhance the storyline by doing this with the music here. And they, they also need to understand how the use of electronics, whether it be a, a bunch of triggers on a pad or what have you, or voiceovers, how they can be part of what they're writing. Yeah. And, you know, if you have somebody who's trying to write, but, you know, you don't really know how to do it and you've got somebody who's trying to learn, you know, one of the best things we learn about as music educators is score study, right? So find some marching band shows that are already written out and just buy the $7.50 score. And you know, and take it. I'm not saying those are always the, the top shelf stuff, but find some stuff you like and just get used to like what does drum corps sound like, or what are these what do these arrangements do in the front ensemble, and then just start mimicking that. Start copying those sorts of concepts. And you know, if you have somebody who's in it for the long haul who wants to try to do it year after year, they're going to keep keep getting better at it. Um, and I think one of the other things you got to think about with the front ensemble is that you get some of these crazy drill riders that. Uh, like stage you. the front ensemble not right in the front which i'm one of those crazy drill writers and um so that has to be taken into consideration as you write the front ensemble book too when tom started writing the battery books for us he was actually raised in a system of rote teaching and they would learn it measure by measure just but what they were taught by the teacher who taught them and they produced some really really good drum lines i mean i think probably the best drum lines that have ever occurred in this state came from that system but then when tom realized when i told him you know our kids can read music let's work on writing it down more you know that was sort of a learning curve for him because he wasn't used to learning it that way so in the writing part of it like instead of writing a half note he'd write a 16th note followed by a 16th note rest and an eighth note rest and a quarter rest you know there was just some stuff we had to fix but the biggest thing in tom's heart was he just wanted to improve and get better and grow so over the few years where he learned that, it just got, he learned that whole piece of it. And, um, and you know, having a battery writer who can really write to the strength of their kids and write split bass parts that are the level they can perform and write the snare book and write the tenor book for the level of their kids to feature them, that's a real big talent. It's not just, you know, whatever notes I want to write down. It's like, I think the battery writer needs to be able to play all of it and then say, how hard is this? And then whatever difficulty it is, you know, does that fit the kids that I have who are going to be on that instrument? The other thing is too, as you get your writers, um, I'm pretty sure Terry White uses Finale, but uh, I use Sibelius, John uses Sibelius, Tom uses Sibelius, Kyle uses Sibelius. So we, we once we get Terry's thing, we get an XML and we put it into Sibelius and then we all share it. And then comes the next thing is all the versions of Sibelius, whoever's writing, I want, I'm on ultimate, John's on seven, Tom's on uh, eight or six, I can't remember, I don't know what you're on. And so we all learn to share 
our parts so that we can put them on Google Drive and share them and all work together simultaneously talking about things, how to improve the show as a staff before we even get it to the kids. Yeah, and we you might have gone over quickly, but for anybody who's going between the program, the XML file, it's when you save it as .xml, and then it's a universal code that, e that, that they can share and open email and share with the files. And, and it, it, I think the unique thing about what we do is that we're always sharing. You know, we're, we're always going back. We'll send texts to one another. Hey, check out the Google Drive. I just wrote the first, the uh, battery part to the uh, first section. See what you think. Yep. And we go back, we listen, and, we, and then we'll write, yeah, I really like this. Could you change this a little bit here? Or could you add a measure here or take a measure away here? So we're constantly revising and improving as time goes on. Uh, all right, let's keep going. What are we doing next? So we've got the music book now, and we've got a storyline. Now we've got to get costuming done through the for the guard and in our case now the band and the uh, guard equipment and the field design and everything and that's that's another meeting or two where we sit and discuss that we come back and uh jessica goes and gets samples of different guard costumes because we don't we don't have an unlimited budget and uh the, so we go on uh guard closet or um, use guard equipment and find them and uh, see if we can get them at a reduced price to fit into our budget so it's not like it has to be the right number, of, the right number of sizes, and that might fit the kids who are in your guard. You know, you got to think about all those things. And the coloration palette that you choose for your show, and if you're going to have props, what props they are, can they be built, or are they built already and can be recolorized? Color. When you're talking about color, I remember seeing a a, a, um, a, a talk by Greg Bim and somebody else. But if you don't know Greg, he's at Marion Catholic University, and I mean uh, Jeff. We haven't talked about him, but from in my estimation, from what I've known, one of the truly great programs in the in the country, and his one of the things he was saying in his talk was that your guard costuming um, and colors need to be like stage makeup, in that from close up it's almost offensive and doesn't look very good, but it really pops when you're in the stands. When I was a younger teacher, I didn't understand that, and it always looked good up close, but then it didn't have an effect from far away. So we want to be thinking about 50 yards away. What does it look like? Yeah, if you can get anything that's any YouTube that Greg's done or Dick Sacedo's done uh, from uh, formerly from uh, Carmel. Carmel High School, those are the greatest, greatest lecture classes you can go to and they'll teach you so much. Um, and Greg's right. Up close, it's not going to look beautiful, but nobody's standing up close. Everybody's up in the stands watching. And it's got to be exciting. So we go and we pick our costumes and we pick our um, what we do lately is we've been doing we have the bibbers and then we have a top designed for us to go over our costumes because our uniforms are a bit dated and we're trying to go with the activity like uh, DCI is going with and like DCA is going with as well. So and, I, uh, I think we use is a G2 performance is the company. Yes, we use G2 and, performance. And, you know, we don't we go without a helmet now. Um, it's just the top that goes over with a little zipper in the back sometimes, and it goes over the bibbers that you have, and um, it's, it's pretty sleek. You know, we have to deal with what the kid's hair looks like because now there's no, there's there's no helmet, but it's definitely a more modern look. And the kids like it because they keep it as a souvenir to doing that show because it's not something you're going to recycle or repurpose. And so as they go older, they can say to their children or their friends, hey, this is what I wore when I did this show and the show's usually on YouTube. So that helps out a lot. And so now we've got the music, we've got the percussion book, we've got the, the costuming, 
and we've got the uh, props all done. Now it's time to start writing the drill. So we had done a storyboard. So before I can start writing the drill, Kyle sends me the numbers, which is probably the most crucial thing and important thing a band director does is try to come up with realistic numbers of who is going to be in the band. Now, as a drill writer, we all have to realize that that is always in flux. And we've got to be prepared to adjust for what happens when band camp starts. However, I, will... I do have I do have a session a, a method that I think Jeff appreciates, um, which is more work. But basically, when we have signups for marching band, I give them a promo video that is supposedly hype them up, and it usually has some sort of pop music or something on them that makes them think it's going to be the funnest thing ever, which it is. And then you know they get a, uh, they go on westbrook.band, which when you have a website like we talked about in our branding episode that they can easily find, they can sign up right there. The only way to sign up is to put all their medical information in and have their parents do this and the, all the information. So we get a Google Doc with them signing up, and that's how they sign up. They don't sign up by going up to a piece of paper and writing their name down on a Friday afternoon because we find that yeah we might lose a kid every few years. But all in all, if the kids have gone through that, the parents know about it, and you communicate the schedule as they're signing up, then you know you've got six trumpets, and you know you've got seven baritones, or whatever your number is, and you know you can count on that and, and move forward. And I know with Kyle, I write for a lot of other people, but when I get Kyle's numbers, I know that it's within one or two, because there's always somebody moves or something happens family-wise. But they're very consistent, whereas some of the other groups, I might get large numbers and then I get to the week before band camp. Oh, by the way, we've had this, this and this. So as a drill writer, I've got to jump on it real fast and rewrite for people to accommodate them. And we accept that. But uh, also, it, feel, it feels good to give a higher number. Oh, we're going to have this many in the band. But if like if that's not a real number, it doesn't really matter much. Yeah, what I used to do when I was teaching my high school band is we had rehearsals during the summer. So by the time I got to band camp, my numbers were almost a hundred percent what I had, give or take the typical family problem situation that popped up. Um, so you, you, you start writing the show. And what I recommend is that as you write it, say divide your show into sections. And if they aren't sections, we'll make them into sections, whatever, however you want. And as you do a section, send it out to the staff, let them look at it and say, Tell me what you think. Tell me what you want to change. Sometimes the staff gets back to you. Sometimes the staff doesn't get back to you. And you just got to roll with it. And um, then, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to send it this Friday night. If you have any comments, let me know by Monday. I'm going to start section two on Tuesday. Yep. And you keep rolling it that way. And you do that in Pyware. And right. Now I do it with, with the music so we can kind of see what it's going to look like. Right. And I send a I make a movie of each section so they can see it with the music, with a gawk block going off in the background at the same time so that the staff can see where the tempo is, where the beat is and what everything's going on. And then uh, once we get it all done, we've started using ultimate drill book. Well, before we get to that, when you design each section, general point is that the focus of what you see visually is what you should be hearing musically. Right. So right. if the trombones have the melody for eight measures, they should not be in Timbuktu. They should be well, in the front being featured. I judge a lot too. And what I find is a lot of shows I'll go to judge and it's, it's nine times out of 10, you got the flute or the clarinets having a feature in the back stage right or stage left corner. And I say to the band directors, 
How can you do that when the focal point is there and you've got them way in the back? So that means the drill writer needs to read music and understand the counts. And if you've done a good storyboard, your storyboard already has in the number of beats where they want uh, certain sections to be. Uh, so they have to plan, okay, they're, the trombones are in the back now, but in three sets, they need to be up to the front. And how am right, I going to get them to the front? You're always writing three to four sets in your mind ahead of what you're writing at the moment. Yeah. And, uh, and I think you need to check with the band director and with the staff all the time to make sure what you, what's written works. And it's within the skill level of the kids. Sometimes you get these really exquisite shows, but the kids don't have the muscle memory or the training to do what you want them to do. You've got to write within their training parameters. I have a question. For the band director who is doing a marching band program, they find themselves there and they do not have a drill writer. One that they like or one that they can find or they're like, you know what? I'm taking this on myself. You know, we've all done that where it's like, all right, we're going to make a box and then we're going to sit there for a while. And can you give us in a minute or less sort of what approach should that band director take if they're literally doing it themselves to do a simple show that's going to do the best that they can? A, get your school district to buy you Piware Basics 3.0. B, go online and Pyware has at least 50 or 60 beginning YouTubes to watch to learn how to do it. Three, simple but effective. Yeah. Don't write anything crazy. You watch drum corps shows. They do all these wonderful things. Well, they've been trained all summer to do that and beyond. Make it simple and effective so it brings out the high points of the music. Yeah. And in my case, remember the 20-second rule. Every 20 seconds, there needs to be a picture change that makes everything look totally different. Yeah, and and something every 20 seconds where somebody's going to clap. You know, something, right. something that's happening. And give, them, and give them time to clap. Don't give them, oh, let's, okay, we're done. Sometimes transition is very important from picture to picture, but sometimes some writers never give you a picture so there's nothing for the audience to respond to. And you have to have the audience have the ability to buy into your show as well. Okay. So now get, so say you've written this show. Now you have to say, okay, what do my kids need to be able to do in this show in order to perform it? And that's how you build your basics block, right? Which is similar well, to parade style. I, I, I do it a little differently that in my mind, I, I know what I want them to do. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I know that they can do that. The basics block, comes after that so that we reinforce that so it's just a natural transition into the show and a really great way to do basics block is you know you have your mark time and you deal with some upper body stuff and you can put in some really basic dance moves that that you will you might use in your show and you can teach it during that time um you know one thing that jeff suggested to us a number of years ago and i really love is we, you come up with like a cool pop soundtrack that the kids can do silently as a warm-up to this and they go to a show and they can perform it and they feel like they are sort of the superstars of that show and they're not doing it to a goth block they're doing it to this soundtrack and i think we kind of get that from the guard the winter guard side of things they they like to do that um and and you know when you're in rehearsal and you're doing the block you can also then incorporate some of your basic musical stuff too right so right. you're playing scales or lipslers or what at long tones doesn't matter, but just just trying to find like we do in our bands. Okay, we're taking five or ten minutes every day, and we're going to work on technique and reading and and just all the things so that we never just work on the music we're playing. That's important in marching band too, is that we're always thinking about 
uh, how am I improving these kids' skills outside of just playing the show? Because it's easy to go, oh, we got two weeks to a show, let's jump in and do it. But we want to try to get that basics time in, even if it's five minutes, you know, every single every single week. And one thing, Jeff, that you've done that I really appreciate, we might have a basics block that's like 64 counts long. Well, we, we might not learn all 64 until the end of the season. That you're really good at like, we're going to learn eight counts. And we're going to do that. The kids don't know it's longer than eight. We're just going to do eight. And then we'll slowly give it to them as it's ready throughout the season. Right. And as the skill level develops. I think the next point we'd have to talk about is teaching the drill that was written. We, yeah. we as music educators have been taught how to teach music, but now we got to teach the drill. And um, it's the same concept. Time, it's the same concept. Same concept. You're teaching counts and you're correlating counts to the drill. I like teaching the drill with music simultaneously. I, I have some friends that teach their whole drill and then they go back and put the music to the drill. I think that's counterproductive. Because if you teach the music with the drill at the same time, the kids you learn to understand where the musical cues are better than counting. Okay, I count 20, 20, I do a plus one to the right. Whereas they know on my B flat, I know when I go to the D in the next measure, I move to my right. And at um, a, really, a really basic level, because I remember being a student and not understanding this, a set is say it's 16 counts. That's four measures of four, four getting from one spot to another spot. And they Correct. practice those 16 counts over and over again. And then they play the four measures and then they march and play the four measures. Every set is, you know, a certain number of measures. Not every, it's not like every beat is another set. Right. And so with, you've got your drill written and hopefully you wrote it in Piware and you have, you get a coordinate sheet, which shows each set number of counts, the measure numbers and what they have to do. And, and you, that's the way Kyle and I did it for a long time together. And then we decided to try ultimate drill book. And we first tried it. We had a choice of using our cell phones or using a drill book they put out. And um, Kyle wanted, and very honestly, I thought after I thought about it, it was a great idea. He wanted to reduce the online time for the kids because they get too much online time. And it was a very valid statement. It was a great statement. But then as time went on, we decided, well, let's try the cell phone. And <laughs> since we've gone to the cell phone and using UDB or Ultimate Drill Book, I think we've cut our teaching time almost in half. Yep. Because not only can the kids see where they're going to the next dot, they can see what yard lines they cross over on what count. They can see the path that they go and they can hear it and keep the music going at the same time to, uh, to watch both. And I think that's taught us a lot about teaching. And uh, the folks that run UDB are very open to helping us in uh, getting things coordinated and making any adjustments that we need to make to the, the process. We ran into a little problem last year with uh, some Android phones not accepting the program. Yep. I sent it off, off to them and they came back and they fixed it. And it, it worked wonderfully after that. And you know, the yeah. nice thing is if you want to do an update, say you get write something and it looked great on, on Pyware, but you get out there and do it and say, well, that is never going to work. You as the drill writer can go and rewrite that section and just go to the computer and hit update. And the kids get it immediately on their phone. The drill book is done. Where in the past, you'd have to pass out new coordinate sheets. You'd have to pass out new drill books to the whole staff. And it was it used a lot of resources and a lot of time. Now it's just the drill rider's job. Get it done, send it out, and the update is finished. And regarding cost, like we've talked about uniform tops that are custom, and we've talked about 
um, the UDB app. You know, we don't have a fee to be in marching band. A lot of these places to be in marching band, you need to pay $2,000 as a band fee and all like, we don't do that. You know, we always offer to pay if a student, if a child cannot pay. Um, the UDB app, I believe for the session that we go for, that level, it's $10 per kid. And the top is 50, last thing I knew it was in the upper 50s. And we all, we ship them all together because they do $15 of shipping, whether it's all of them at once or for each to separate one. So, you know, if a family paid for all of it, we're talking $70 um, for all of that. But again, we have a number of kids who say, you know, we can't afford that. And, but most families, if they find out in May that they're going to owe $70 in three or four months can make that happen. Yeah. And, and we had every kid use it. The only thing you run into is some of the younger kids may not have a cell phone. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you just have to tell the drill writer, please print out a coordinate sheet. And you print it out and the kid learns from that. But I'm sure that you'll find out that it, it carries through that they eventually get a and, cell phone. And not, not to show my bias, but if you've got a kid almost in high school or in a high school who doesn't have a cell phone yet, they're usually okay. They don't, they're not usually the issues when it comes to learning drill. I mean, we just had a girl, I won't say her name, who came in and she, I mean, she's like the superstar already and she's, she's young and all this and no cell phone, but eh. I don't worry about that. She's already, she learns it faster than the kids with the cell phones. I, I got to be honest. When, when I found out she didn't have a cell phone and she was doing the sheet, I said, oh, we're going to have to give her a lot of special help. And she learned it faster than anybody else because everybody else was, she just, she did it. She was wonderful. Yeah. And the other thing is when you take out this UDB license with them, it goes for a year. So if you're doing winter percussion or winter guard or both, you can have it there for the, you don't have to pay an additional fee. And um, I think it's been a great teaching tool. The music part, you know, you get the music, you got to teach the music, you get the drill, you got to teach the drill. But it's the same thing. The child can go home and practice their music. And Kyle puts these wonderful uh, play along. So the kids, after they learn it, get to play along with it or with the full score. And, and then for the play same along, thing with marching band. You get you can march your drill by yourself with your cell phone and practice on your own. For the, the play along, I just take the full score when it's all written. And I put it in Sibelius. And if you click on the mixer and you mute all the, or you put all the parts down at 10%, you keep the battery maybe at 20% and you put their part at 100%, you can hear the whole band playing, but your part is clearer. Now, yes, it's a, it's a, you know, a computer audio, but that doesn't matter. Like it's accurate, it's right. And they can hear it within context. Um, I'll even put up in the folder, I'll put up, here's the clarinet practice track and the clarinet slow practice track. So they have one under tempo and they have one at tempo um, to help them. So that's that's been a big teaching tool for us. And we it have to keep, it, we have to keep in mind just... that as you, as you build the show and you start going through it a couple weeks in performances, you're gonna wanna change some stuff in your show. You, there's stuff you might wanna add and change or get rid of, or if judges come to you and they have ideas about to change it, you know, never be married too much to what you're doing always be flexible to see what's best for the kids yeah and um well i forgot what i was going to say but that's okay that's right uh, i do it all the time <laughs> i i have an excuse <laughs> but yeah. I, I i think that once you get that taught and the show taught then don't say you're finished you're not finished You've got to refine. You've got to develop and improve the show and get the kids to understand it. 
And that's the long term. That's performance. That's the performance right. aspect. And I, I think that too many directors figure once they get through band camp and the show's taught, okay, I'm done. We just got to go and perform. No, it's those rehearsals where you're making things, creating clarity, creating greater balance and blend, improving intonation. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about intonation, but how, how many times have you heard? Um, well, I'll give you an example. I hate it, but that infinity commercial that's out there right now where they've got all those kids playing, um, also struck there's Sarah Lustro and they're, they're, they're playing and they're totally out of tune. And I just want to take something and throw it at the TV because first of all, it's diminishing us as music educators. It's diminishing the children learning to play because they could be ta have taught, been taught to play in tune. Yep. And we spend a lot of time talking about intonation, balance of chords, what notes have to come out better it's so that we have a better sound. On the field. It's just concert band on the field. Right. And for those of us with jazz programs, you know, just think of it. If all your brass players play for 200 hours of rehearsal over the fall, how do you think your brass section is going to sound in the big band? Way stronger because mm -hmm. they've been doing all the warm ups. They've been playing all the time. Even if it's the same seven minutes over and over, it's on their face. And they're just, as, mm -hmm. especially if you're warming them up correctly and warming them down, if you can get them to not create bad habits, then that's a really, really big deal. Um, Jeff, I, I wanted to click on two more things, if it's okay with you. Um, for us to, I mean, we've been going a while now, but these are really, really important topics. Um, one is staff design and the other one is metronome use. I'm going to start with metronome use. I will say this, this costs about, eh, I guess I'll say $1,500, but it's a one-time investment, at least in a decade. And if you can make this happen, you will change your entire marching program. Um, when I was younger, I was against the use of the metronome, but if you can get a Megavox system which has the bluetooth uh, adapter with it and you put it in the back of the field on the 50 we put it on the back hash on the 50 and then i have the dr beat whatever brand or whatever um model you have of the dr beat that's just just south of 200 dollars um but that with that you can always set the correct tempo that you want and your kids can learn that and we use it every single day until championships we, we don't get off it. We just use it, use it, use it, use it. And it ingrains the tempos in their head. The great thing about the Dr. Beat, better than a cell phone that goes up for, for Bluetooth or a little Korg or whatever, the, the Dr. Beat, you can program the entire show from beginning to end. You can program 64 counts at this tempo. Then you can program 120 counts at that tempo. And what happens is you click, once you program all of it, you click start. And then it takes you through the entire seven, eight, nine minute show with retards and accelerandos and all that. Um, and setting that up is a whole other thing. You can learn how to do that on YouTube or, or email me and I'll tell you. Um, but once you do that, it takes all the guesswork out of the performance of the show. And it makes it much more rigid, much more finalized. Um, and it really improves the whole program. And plus, you also have the situation as band directors, we always have that child who can't keep a steady beat and they need assistance in keeping a steady beat. And this teaches them to internalize the steady beat in them. And it doesn't. I was just like Kyle when I first started marching. Oh, I'll never do that. Well, then I switched to I will always do that. And, you know, you got the on and off. You start the show with it, and then they play for a while, and you turn back on, and you say to them, okay, did we lag in the tempo? Did we rush in the tempo? What do we need to fix that so that we get it so it's ingrained in the kid's head? And I'll tell you, when you get the concert band season, 
tempo becomes a much more usable scenario. And every once in a while, you might even throw that out there too, just to help them realize what tempo it is for them. Yep. So um, last thing is staff design. You know, if you're doing a marching band by yourself, God bless you. You know, I just, I don't know how you do that well. Um, in our, I will just say in our town, we have a budget of $12,000, um, which has been that way since I think 2000. So it's not like it's gone up or down for us. It's basically stayed exactly the same. And uh, that is free for me to divvy up however I want. Now I choose to basically take, I do, I have, uh, we pay the writers and uh, all that. And I basically choose to take six staff members and pay them each $1,500, which is not very much for an entire season, but it's something. Um, so I can kind of get that covered. I'll get, you know, uh, maybe two horn coaches, maybe two or three percussion coaches, a visual coach, you know, things like that. And you, you, there's not enough room for everybody you need. But if you just find a way to take any budget that you can have and get enough people to help, if you have a little bit of success and it's a program that people enjoy watching and you're a nice teacher and you're a good um, uh, band director to work with as a staff member, then word gets out and then you'll get other good teachers asking if they can teach with you too. And that's when you say, we would love to have you in our staff. I don't have any money to pay you, but if you'd like to come and volunteer your time, we would be honored to have you on our staff. And then you get all these people who just want to be there, who just want to help. And this is their musical outlet now. And they're adults and they've got other lives. And this is just fun for them. Um, and, and then, you know, you're then you're thinking of your percussion staff and your guard staff and your, you know, the horn visual staff and all that, like as sort of separate entities. And you try to, you know, strengthen each one of those as your years go on within the context of your budget. Um, um, and a plug on the horn side of things, if you can find middle school teachers who would like to teach with you, it's amazing having a middle school band director on your staff. Jeff, could you tell them why? Well, they know the, the weaknesses of kids coming up into a high school program, and they're able to address those weaknesses. And also, they give the input. They'll say, I remember this one young lady who works for us. Uh, she came up and said, are you crazy? Are you asking them to play that and march that at the same time? And I and I said to her, yes. And he said, they'll never do it. I said, give them time. They will. Just treat them the way you would treat middle school kids. She said, oh, my God. And and she did it, and it worked out just fine. And, and if you have somebody who's used to running their own middle school program, <coughs> they're used to getting it done. They're used to just doing it and making it happen. So you can say, hey, Adam, would you take the brass line and work on letter D? That's all you got to say. They, you know, if they're a good teacher, they know how to make that happen. And that's just, it was such a blessing to get, you know, we have between Jeff and I and Missy and Adam, you know, we have four band directors who were on the staff and it's just so awesome that all these people can do things. It, the amount of time that I had to spend just teaching brass for all those years, because I was the only one who was really a brass teacher, you know, the ability to, you know, let other people have the teaching time. And think of it from a middle school teacher standpoint. You know, if they don't have to drive very far, I mean, we do have a staff member who drives a long way, a couple of them, but usually if it's the next town over or whatever, they spend all their time with middle school kids. And middle school kids are amazing, but like sometimes they want to work with a little bit higher level of musician. So they get to spend a couple hours with you each week and it kind of invigorates them uh, and helps them too. And you never know if in a neighboring community, there's a high school band director who doesn't do marching band at their school 
but they have marching band drum corps experience and they just want they get the itch they want to do it just say hey you want to come over and help out or they may say the same to you and say hey can i come over i remember one time i was driving by i had a practice parking lot that we used where i taught and i was driving by one morning when i was going to get a cup of coffee and a, a bagel and here's this guy marching on the parking lot and i said no, i don't know what that is not one of my kids too old come by the next day there he is again doing it third day comes by, i said well i gotta go find out what's going on and i found out this guy was in um drum corps and he was practicing for the upcoming season i said well uh, are you interested in working in the fall and he said sure and he came back and worked for me and now he's been working 23 years teaching marching band teaching visual and uh you never know what's going to come popping out of the woods at you yeah yeah so uh yeah. I, I i think marching band is a great activity and it can help your concert program whereas some band directors say i'll never do the marching band because it doesn't help my concert activity i think they're totally wrong if you teach marching band like it's concert band you will improve your sound your strength and as you pointed out with the brass section and jazz ensemble how much they understand air and projection and all all that stuff i, it's I a, will say it's not I say, evil i will say it is your it's not an evil activity it is a lot of work and there's a lot of band directors who know their sort of place in their job and you know they want to leave at 2 30 or 3 and like i'm i'm not here to demonize that that is definitely wonderful when that's able to happen um so you know starting one's different maintaining one's different trying to keep one going you know all that it is definitely work you know but if you can spread that work out and plan it well it can be a great opportunity for your students and i think you'll find that it you'll have students come back and talk to you over and over again i i watched some of your alums come back and they say do you remember the 2015 show when we did this and you'll say, give me a second. Yeah, I do remember that. And it creates great connections and longevity. And development of people, because you're dealing with leadership of kids. You're dealing with performing in front of kids. You know, we haven't even talked about this, but like they go out on the field. And as a band director, I could just be sitting watching, eating a hot dog. I'm not conducting. It's the only thing I'm not conducting, you know, and students have to conduct it. And it's the teamwork is huge and the the, the self-confidence they gain from being able to perform in front of thousands of people and play solos and, and, and perform these great shows. It develops great character in kids. Yeah, I always used it used to say it's the greatest developer of esprit de corps in a program. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it also develops a camaraderie amongst the staff with a common goal where that common goal changes annually, but gives a focal point for people to move around and work towards. All right, Jeff, this has been really fun. I can't wait for our next episode, which everybody's going to have to wait to find out what that's about, but it's going to be really, really awesome. We have a great, a great guest coming for next week. Jeff, any plans for this weekend? Yes, I'm judging the Musical Arts Conference Championships in uh, Stanford, Connecticut at West Hill High School. So you're going south. I'm going north. We have a jazz festival today and tomorrow um, south in york and then i'm going up to district five up near bangor to conduct three great pieces of music randall standridge's um steel is the closer the wellerman arranged by paul murtha if you guys haven't checked out the wellerman it's like a grade two and a half but the articulation and the history you can get through that uh, in this flex band arrangement it's so good and it's got like 105 million views on the the tiktok video um and so it's super great and then the ballad we're going to use is a grade two ballad which is like all white notes 
um, called Rippling Watercolors by Brian Balmages, which is just gorgeous. And uh, hopefully it's going to be a great musical experience for those kids and, and for me. So um, until later, Jeff, let's sign off. All righty. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Growing Band Director podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your band director friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our YouTube channel, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you have the time, we highly recommend the After Sectionals podcast for more great listening. Thank you for listening to the Growing Band Director. See you next week.